Hey everybody, Code Pen Radio number 399. It's a founder podcast. Well, I have Alex with me, Chris. What's up? What's up? Yeah, we, we've been uh, working on some data manipulation stuff that ended up being kind of a funny story and, uh, and uh, exemplifies some Alex Vazquez thinking, if you ask me, <laughs> which is... Uh, Good or so bad. Here's the, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sometimes it ends up with a little more coding than you're ready for, but then it... it uh, uh, <laughs> It ends up being good in the end, and you look back and you're like, "God dang it, he was right again." Um, <laughs> here's the here's the the crux of it was this. Uh, before I tell you what the actual problem was, which I think has a funny beginning, the idea is that it's almost to, to me it's almost like a junior developer versus senior developer and beyond thinking is that there's one way if you have some problem in your code that you can just like just immediately fix exactly what's sitting right in front of you and then call it done and walk away. And and a, but a, perhaps a more experienced programmer like you <laughs> will look at that problem and be like, "How did we get here?" And let's say that, and how can we prevent it from happening again? What kind of tooling can we build? What kind of what kind of what more can we do to just to solve the crap out of this problem? <laughs> and that's right. that's not just for this. That's a really generic statement about all kinds of stuff that we do around here. It's like, how can we fix the problem forever? Right. Make it one of my goals with uh, everything we build is let's not just fix that problem, but make it impossible for the problem to arise ever again, um, if at all possible. I always like to think about the idea, you know, programming is about making something work, but engineering is about making sure something doesn't fail. And whenever we can try to make sure something won't fail uh, now and into the future, that's that's a huge win for us. Because, um, you know, we're a small team and th things always pop up. So the more we can make this system safe for uh, all our users, the better. Yeah, super cool. That was the case here. And it also made me think about, when I was thinking about that, there's this book that we both read called Ender's Game. This genius <laughs> child, he's a third, remember, which you're not supposed to have thirds in this future where there's too many people or something. And there's this threat from Earth with these alien bugs that are coming to destroy Earth or whatever. And it's a big problem. So they're looking for genius children to, uh, I don't know, somehow lead the, because I don't know, whatever, kids are good at video games. So maybe they can fly ships to kill bugs. I mean, the premise <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but the book is great. Uh, so there's this thing where he's like, okay, he's a genius. So we're going to send him up to flight school. But he's got all these problems. You know, there's, the, he's, little kind of and he's there's this bully and this bully has given him crap and they get into a fight on the ship and so the one way to like for ender could just like win this fight and walk away the problem is he's thinking man if i just win this fight he's gonna still be at school he's gonna be pissed off he's gonna come back at me and there's gonna be worse fights this is gonna be a big problem for me so ender's thinking in the book was what if i like really win this fight what if I break the kid's arm? He's going to wash out. They're going to send him back to Earth. And I didn't just win this fight. I won every single fight going forward. You know, there'll never be another fight. <laughs> little, little bit abstract, maybe, but that was yeah, kind of that's that is the most interesting correlation to the problem that we solved. Right. <laughs> I find Which that I'm really about interesting. to talk about JSON data now, so a little yeah. different than than yeah, arm breaking. I, I do, I do have to say that uh, Ender's a third and. 
I also happen to be a third, so I'll let the audience draw their own conclusions <laughs> on how else uh, we may be similar. Basically talking to a Wiggins here. <laughs> the Here's the, here's the, this is the world's dumbest route. So I, I decided to learn, I don't know how this came to be, but I'm, I'm a gopher now too. Dang right. Yep, you know, official, I was like, like we, yeah. you've, you've been deputized as a yeah, that's official right. gopher. I was like, how can I be more useful to code pen? Well, certainly some more backend stuff would be good. So I start writing a little bit ago, just this year. Well, I guess last year now, cause it's January and I come to understand one particular pro you know go is typed right so if, if it's an integer it's an integer whatever you, you better be sure about that and if you have a piece of json you, you see of types and go right you say type and then i don't know let's call it font size font size is an integer and then you have a chunk of json data and you try to what they call unmarshal that data into a struct and on font size is a string in that json but it's an integer in the type Guess what? It just panics. It just gives up. It just can't do it. Um, unfortunately, we had that exact problem at CodePen. Some of our JSON data in our database, some, not all, which is like, ugh, obnoxious, you know? <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I for would various say, reasons. Uh, that's kind of the motto of the first six or seven years of CodePen. We get <laughs> most of it right. <laughs> well, yeah. So we are looking in the database, sure as shit, there's font size, quote, 16 in the database. That will not unmarshal, and that's a problem because we're writing so much of our you know code in Go. We, we can't deal with that. So the, one of the ways to handle it in Go is just to be like, okay, it's not an integer; it's just an any or an inter, an empty interface. So that at least it will unmarshal, and you'll get the data. And then later you can write more Go code to like write a little switch statement to test what kind of data it actually is and coerce it into being the correct type. That's kind of fine, but that's real code smell. And that's something anybody in a PR would be like, what the hell is that? <laughs> you know, like, yeah. That's no good. It just punts the problem down the road. And certainly one of your mantras over the last several years has been like, no, 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 no. We don't work for the data. The data works for us or some variation of that. You know, like, let's fix this problem where it where it started, which is kind of in the database and and anywhere that might have put that bad data in the database. So that goes without saying. You fix where it's getting into the database wrong. And in this case, it's something as simple as HTML. It's like when you get the when you get like a number out of a select element in HTML in JavaScript, you gotta like run parse int on it to make sure it's an integer before you put it in the database. That's that was just kind of it was stuff like that that was putting the bad data in the j database to begin with. So of course we fix that, but then we're like, okay, let's solve the problem right in front of us. I'll write a script because this is you've had me do this a couple of times now. I wrote a script to fix some crap in the database uh, in the past. So I'll just write a script. I'll loop over every single thing. I'll find instances where this is the case. I'll make it sure that it's an integer, and I'll put the data back. So I ended up writing a script like that, and that was, a, and then we were kind of like, hmm, but wait. I wonder what what more we can do here. Like mm, that's you know, I want. Can we build some tools to make sure this never happens again, and that we have more useful tools for ourselves? So I just did a lot of talking there, but is that about track yeah, for that, you? Yeah, that was a big part of it when you um, submitted the pull request. Uh, looking at it, one of the first things I noticed was there was a lot of classes. Um, that you were creating. And part of the reason you were creating the classes is to tr try to transfer from a kind of a generic like string type uh, value to a more specific value. And then there was a lot of coercion between these types. But these types were like 
oddly similar, right? They were looked almost exactly the same except for a few details amongst them. And I think in the end, there was like close to four different struct types uh, in, in our right. Golang code that were just all made to course like bad data to good data and vice versa. Um, and so just stepping back and looking at it, we're kind of still, I would say, like in the middle of our transition from Rails code to Go code and transferring that logic. And one of the things that we don't that we have on the Rails side is we have all these validators and ways to write uh, logic that makes sure that code is in a certain format or meets a certain business requirement that we have. Um, and we don't we didn't have that prior to this on the go side. So if you could step back and look at this problem from a high level, not only are you looking at enforcing that the data type is correct, but you also should be enforcing that the actual value is one of the that it meets kind of our business logic, right? So like for example, maybe the font size can't be smaller than six and it can't be larger than, 40 or 50, something mm-hmm. like that. Um, I don't know the exact rules that we have for font size, but... Oh, I see what you mean. So we're talking about not just isn't an integer, but isn't an integer between these two integers. Because, right, and maybe we yeah. don't allow odd numbers because we don't really like odd numbers in our <laughs> font sizes. Whatever whatever right, logic sure. we come up with, we wanted to make sure that we enforce that logic. And so we took a step back and we're like, okay, not only are we just writing a bunch of code, that is obvious that we're going to throw it away after this script is done. But then on top of that, we don't have a standard way of enforcing this logic on the Go side. Yes, How would we do that? How do we do the coercion from JSON and marshalling and unmarshalling? Um, And just making sure that all of that logic is accurate across the board was kind of a a big deal. And um, yeah, so we just kind of got... To thinking about actually a now I remember that that meeting because we're like let's we need to think of what exactly it is we're going to build because this was really squirrely at least in my mind and then after the, we had one meeting that was really productive because we came up with three things that we needed number one a way to unmarshal Jason safely and like fix basic problems but then. Because to me, this whole problem was JSON related, but it really wasn't. It was like what you described. It was about like data validation and defaults too. So number one was to unmarshal that data safely, and that's fine. We built we built that tool, and then, honestly, that's what we ended up using in the script, and it was super useful. But then the second tool was validation. So make sure that this integer is between these two values. But the, and then the, there was a third, and the third was a. What's the default? Because if you make a struct and go right. and you say this is an integer, the integer will be z- it's zero, right? I think zero. Yeah, is the, it'll be the like the, there's kind of like a default blank value. So for strings, you get empty strings. Booleans, you get false. And, false. Yeah. Uh, numeric values, you tend to get the zero value. But we're like, f- what if you know? What if you instantiate a new empty copy of this type struct? What if we don't want it to be false? We want it to be true. What do you do? Well, goes verbose. You just you make a new empty one, and then you and then you just set it to true. You like literally just write some code that sets it to true. And we did that all over in our code base. We would be like, well, if this equals the default value, then you know there'd be this big chunk of if then code that would, would that would uh, put the defaults that we wanted in there. 
There's all kinds of places we do that. So instead, there, you know, as I think you were looking around at validation libraries, one of them uses in Go, like when you're making a struct, you can put like backtick characters after the type that just gives random extra information about what's going on there. And that's where one of these libraries would put validation info. So if it's an integer, it'd say, well, the minimum is four and the maximum is 20. Right. So you and kind it, of stick the information in a Go tag, uh, which is common tag. for like JSON and, and things like that. And so, and I, and I think a, a lot of the influence of wanting to kind of structure something like that is partially coming from the dynamic languages that we come from. Um, and then also this want to have a declarative versus imperative solution. So, you know, when we build our logic for data validation, like Chris said, if you, if you always want a variable to be set to true because it's a Boolean, um, you could just easily create a method that says new type name and always return a new instance of that value. Um, and that's one way to do it. And you, you know, someone goes in with their own two hands and types in true, and that's all fine. But then when you go to the next one, you have to do the same thing. And that's, that's fine. It's not a big deal. We do that often uh, where we kind of have these like factory type patterns, but they're just in methods. Um, but we were kind of looking, when you look at that and you're looking at many different structs with many different types and values and then they have to be part of an enum. Sometimes things get a little bit more complicated like the font size or like the font family. Let's say the font family can only be one of, you know, six font families that we support and blank value is just not really there. How do you enforce that concisely and consistently? And so that's kind of where we ended up taking a library, uh, it's called Package Validator, and adapting it to our needs, um, to using Go tags and using a lot of the logic that they already have, but then adapting it and making it our own. Um, so that's kind of where, that's the path that we ended up choosing to go. But you can start to see how this problem that started with, hey, we need to make numeric or string type values, integer type values in JSON, Let's actually step back and look at how we do serialization, how we instantiate new objects in Go or new structs. Apologies, mm -hmm. there's no objects in Go, just structs. Um, and then how we enforce for very simple logic, like it should be part of an enum. How do we enforce that? And a big, we don't normally do that. That's a very rare occasion, but because we're in such a nascent part of our move to go there's still a fair amount of logic that we're moving from ruby rails mm -hmm. it was a good time to do that it was like okay let's do that now because we'll get a lot of mileage out of us a really great solution that we're happy with and so this felt like the most over-engineered solution for this particular problem but the beauty is now we have something that's really reusable and something that we can uh build on that's what's wild about it because it's not just for it's not just rules for this one struct. It's like this will work for anything, and we have all kinds of types, you know, ones you'd expect like a user, but there's ones for like what a pen is and what a processor is, and all these all these things. And to be able to say any one of those things, you can just put tags on the end of it, and you can say what are the defaults and what are the validation rules for it, and then use that as you will. 
on any struct, which is which was powerful. It, that's exactly what made it complicated too, because it's just go is just complicated in that way. If you if you say oh loop over you know all the all the stuff in a struct, even that is a little more complicated than you would think it is, and it has to do with this. Go concept of reflection. It's like I want to look. I want to look at a copy of myself. Yeah, to, to say that was a little bit more complicated is uh, an understatement on the uh, on looping over structs and all the internal types of those structs was uh, really really interesting, and a, a kind of gave us a, a whole new perspective on Go coding and meta coding in Go, which was really interesting. Yeah, wild. Yeah, there's not as simple as I, I'm. I'm sure in JavaScript, there's just you know, object dot keys or whatever, and you just loop <laughs> over it. So no object dot keys and go. Unfortunately, uh, there. I mean, there kind of is, but it's. yeah, there, there, there is. It's just a lot more uh, complex to to wrap your mind around because of the typing, and there are just certain things that you can't do um, in Go where you have to kind of dance around this stuff. So one of we actually, for a moment there, were like almost considering putting this aside as too complicated for the moment. Um, mm-hmm. And so it, it wasn't until I found um, a really, really great library um, from Mitchell Hashimoto, which is the CTO of um, HashiCorp. Um, he has a really beautiful library. I, I think if you're a Go coder, you should really uh, look at the source code just to understand some of the things that he's doing there or considered using the library if you have this need. But it's a, he has a library called Map Structure, which is maps. Um, it basically handles serialization when you're mapping things in Go and gives you the opportunity to um, set those values and provide custom functions uh, if the value doesn't meet the type that you have. And he uses a lot of uh, reflection uh, in there, he, he almost a hundred percent reflection in, in the way he handles that, and so um, I don't think we ended up. Ironically, we didn't end up using his library, but I to say that I took inspiration from his library is almost an understatement. I ended up copying pieces of code to try to debug problems that I was having, and then adapting it to what we were doing internally and it really taught me a ton about like go and reflection and go and things like that um, and it was a really interesting path um, to just learn about the internals of how go handles uh, typing and things like that and then it, it does end up being a little scary in the sense of when you're handling go uh, reflection a lot of it can panic at runtime which is exactly one of the biggest yeah, draws dude. of using go and oh. it can be a bit frustrating at the beginning for sure yeah yeah that stuff is rough is one one little error in your cuz it doesn't and, and i'm so used to go being helpful and being like having big old red squiggles when your code is wrong cuz you're like that's not going to compile but reflection doesn't know you know, like doesn't know have enough information to know if it's going to panic or not. So you're you're back in the dark ages. You're being dynamic in a language that's encouraging you to do the opposite. You know, so it, our solution definitely requires a fair amount of testing, um, and that's that's a big part of what we did. I, I think a huge part of what we did is we ended up creating all these structs to make sure that every scenario that we were even remotely interested in passed and handled was handled properly with our, our logic. 
internally. So that was like a big, huge part part of our uh, solution was writing a bunch of tests with a bunch of random structs and and things that we weren't even using at the time, but we wanted to make sure that they would work because we're trying to kind of create a, a generic solution for all our structs now into the future. So that was a big part of it. Yeah, pretty good testing hygiene at coding at CodePad. You know, I'd say dang near every Go file has a little has a little underscore test sitting right next to it, uh, which is pretty cool. This podcast is brought to you by Split the feature management experimentation platform. What if a release was exactly how it sounds? A moment of relief. Ah, escape from slow, painful deployments that hold back product engineers. Free for teams and your features with Split by attaching insightful data to feature flags. Split helps you quickly deploy, measure, and learn the impact of every feature you release, which means you can turn up what works, turn off what doesn't, and give software innovation the room to run wild. Now you can safely deliver up to 50 times faster and exhale. Split feature management and experimentation. What a release. Reimagine software delivery. Start your free trial and create your first feature flag at split.io slash codepen. Thanks so much for the support. And the, part of that reflection stuff is also, I don't, I don't know to what degree this increases the complexity, but it seemed like to me a lot was, is this thing a pointer or not it <laughs> just sucks you yeah. know is it? yeah that that is a huge part of go um i get, it's funny that you bring that up i have a um a function that will get a pointer to a pointer to a pointer it like will we've i've ended up expanding on this reflection library to write kind of an internal logger library with it um and because of the, you can always have a pointer to a pointer. You can have, it's almost infinite. Um, just being able to dereference that safely, we, we've ended up coding with a bunch of little utilities internally where we're able to figure out like, okay, is this thing what the type that we think it is in the end? And that a lot of that just came with the experience of actually using Golang Reflection, uh, mm-hmm. which was honestly pretty frustrating at the beginning because it just is doesn't really seem to give you it, it it almost seems too generic too abstract in order to go it's a little hard to go from the go code that you're used to writing to the golang reflection code is a very different it's almost like a different paradigm yeah so, because we weren't just inspecting these structs we, the expectation is that we're changing in fact we called all this stuff data munging munging just being a weird ass word for like manipulating data essentially so all of these functions are like Know, munch, munch, Jason, munch to valid struct, munch struct. They all they all have munch in the name, which I don't mind because it's just now I feel like we own that word. So these are our <laughs> mungers. God darn it! Even the like, so when you, whenever you do this, this was even this in Go to me was a very weird paradigm shift. Is just basically because pointers exist. So if you're already like real comfortable with pointers from some other language, well then good for you. But JavaScript doesn't really do the pointer thing. So there'll be some functions in Go can just return a value. They'll just have a return statement at the bottom. And then when you call that function, you can use the return value. That's very like normal to me in JavaScript. Although one twist is that Go can return multiple things. 
which is weird. Instead of, you know, JavaScript can just return the one thing. As Joe, you can right. go, you can like comma separate them, which is weird. But there's plenty of stuff in Go where you don't you don't really use the return value. It just returns an error or nothing. And that's because you're what it expects is you to pass it with a pointer. And then because it's a pointer inside that function, you can just like mess with it. And then outside that code, it's it's been manipulated already. You know? Right. Yeah. It 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 breaks the kind of the conceptual model of, of of like a functional programming type function where the best functions take an input and provide an output because they they're, it makes them very easy to test. Whereas yeah, pure in, or whatever. Yeah, they're they're kind of yeah they're purely fun purely functional, right? Like they don't have a side effect, and that's kind of usually the those are the best types of functions um, in the sense of how easy they are to debug and test and things like that. But this throws all of that away. It throws so not only are you throwing away some of the typing that you're used to with Go, but you're also throwing away this functional paradigm that we like to adhere to whenever we can. It's just really nice because it's easy to test. Um, you're literally testing a side effect on having passed in a pointer to a value. But that's just kind of the way Go does handle serialization. When you call JSON Marshall right. on Marshall, that's what you're doing. Um, and so we kind of followed that paradigm. You don't want to be too weird in, in that Go code because it so. doesn't. It, it kind of has to work that way because it doesn't. It doesn't know what type it is. That's the point: is that it doesn't know. And it, it, Jason unmarshalling it doesn't know, and this Mungers it doesn't know. And I find it to be common. I don't know. I, 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 does our we use some kind of ORM or, or something for 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 dealing with our Postgres? That's similar too. If you're going to run a query and get some data back, it doesn't doesn't really know what type it is. <clears throat> so you. Got to pass the pointer. Yeah, there there seems to be two major patterns in Go, which is like you're either generating co Go code that's like type safe, and we do plenty of that with like GQL Gen for GraphQL. Um, and then there's the what we're doing with GORM is the ORM that we're using, um, aptly named Go ORM. And mm -hmm. they deal with everything through reflection. But there are other libraries. Um, I think there's a library called... Is, SQLC or SQLX that people really love, and it generates type-safe Go code from your SQL. And so the, those two paths seem to be the two common paths. You're either going to take the, I'm going to pre-generate everything at build time and know that I'm type-safe, or I'm going to use reflection at runtime. Um, and there's a cost-benefit definitely to, to those two, because the, that Go code that uses reflection is very dynamic and but it will definitely panic at runtime if you do something incorrectly. So you have to have a fair amount of testing with that. Um, and yeah. so, we, ironically, we use both. I, I can't say like I, I would be like 100% adhere to one or the other. Um, for us, we just kind of use whatever works at the for that problem. Yeah, I I, uh, I played with a, a Supabase the other day. Have you seen that company? They Mm -hmm. um, They're the open they, source Firebase company. Yeah, which is so weird. It's like, in what way are you open source Firebase? Your Postgres and Firebase is all their own little proprietary weird JSON store thing. So it's that's not the same. You kind of do real time, but it's not your yeah, not your perfect thing. I just don't, I don't understand the, why they are so obsessed with being a Firebase alternative when it's like you don't do the same stuff. 
But what they do do is they'll spin up a Postgres DB for you like instantly. Every single Superbase you spin up has a Postgres in it. And I was like, oh, that's relevant to CodePen. That's cool. And then they don't have Go bindings, but I saw some... Uh, Open, you know, like everything else in the world, there's some open, there's Superbase dash Go, you know, some, <laughs> yeah, some cool dude made made Go bindings for it. That that if you're listening, Superbase, you should adopt and make official because it's <laughs> it feels much nicer to use an official thing, doesn't it? I think it yeah, feels weird. Yeah, whenever too. there's, I'm sure they get that all the time where you want the official library, but just narrow down to JavaScript, TypeScript, and Go. If you could just stick to that. Superbase would really yeah love it. right that goes I don't for every care. other nobody vendor. cares about your Python bindings dude <laughs> just give me, go it up yeah. um, <laughs> anyway it was it was fun because I, I it's an those bindings are what you'd call a no RM I guess too and they're literally like exactly like ours with Gorm or whatever they just it's the same it's the same crap. Uh, so it was cool. I I wrote a, a Go cloud function, that, and that's what that's what Netlify does too. JavaScript, TypeScript, Go. That's all they got. You yeah, know? Really good choice, Netlify. Yeah, yeah. But it's funny as I feel like I was shortchanged ever because I just did, wrote a little cloud function and it just connected to a super base and pulled some data or whatever just to see if I could do it. And I totally did, and it felt very satisfying. Captain full stack over here. You know, really cool. <laughs> Yeah. But Go was a second-class citizen the whole way through. No official bindings. Then, sure, you can you can write a, a Lambda and Go, but they're just it's lim- it's compared to what JavaScript is like. It's very second-class citizen. I felt like so it kind of sucked. Uh, why is Go so Go's awesome? Get on it, people! Stop making it second class. <laughs> Only first class. Yeah, I'm sure it's like it's it's a tough thing, right? You have to like a lot of times pick languages that you're going to support directly and let the community try to kind of handle the rest. Uh, I'm sure the the Rust folks would make an argument for their language and uh, yeah, that's you know, true. So so would the uh, let's see, uh, the bug, hot Rust one, almost bugs me, you know, because it's like it almost seems. Oh, Nim is that's one like Bondner or Zig yeah, yeah. or Nim is you know it's like it, it's it's a little hard to pick um, languages that you're going to support directly uh, when you're dealing building these SDKs. I mean, for us. Uh, building and, and go like this is kind of, it's it's an interesting departure and it's actually led to us building other tools internally like um, loggers and things like that and little niceties. But um, it, I can understand not wanting to build directly if you're not building consistently in Go. It, it can be a little bit uh, hairy. Yeah, I could kind of get that. I mean, you can only have so much expertise, you know. It's like you, you can't half-ass a, 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 an ORM for a language you don't even know. Like that's not good either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it, it was it, this just judging by how complex it was to solve the really corner case problems in our reflection logic. It was incredible. It, it was actually the most difficult thing I've ever done in Go was going through every data type uh, and being able to map it correctly was uh, something that was like really complex, and it was really <laughs> interesting because. I read a lot of open source code to solve this problem. Um, and there's a lot of, I wouldn't say a lot, but there's quite a few uh, Golang reflection libraries out there. None of them are comprehensive. They all introduce their own set of problems. And I just thought it was just a really interesting problem. Uh, it is interesting because it's problem like there's there. only, it, it seems like a tight space. It seems like how, how, 
I don't know. There's something about it that feels weird to me to make an incomplete reflection library. Like there's only so many types and they're either pointers or not. How does this <laughs> yeah. not? Yeah, they're, that, that's why like I, I really got to highlight that map structure library. That was probably, it, it doesn't sell itself as like a, a generic uh, or a better way to do reflection, but it was incredibly comprehensive um, as far as I could tell. Um, we, mm-hmm. I ended up learning a lot more for it from it than actually attempting to use it. But, uh, yeah, it, to me, it just speaks to like how young the ecosystem still is. Like go being 10 years old is still, and with the, um, mm-hmm. distribution that it has, even though there's a ton of, you know, there's millions of go developers, it's still a very young nascent language where like parts of the ecosystem are, not what you'd expect coming from like a JavaScript TypeScript world where there's a at least 10 packages that do exactly what you want and your choice is to pick the one that's best supported or best fits your API. And I think that sometimes when you're used to that, it is almost confusing to go into another language. You're like, I can't believe you guys haven't solved this problem comprehensively with great docs and with like... A, at least three packages that have like 5,000 stars on GitHub. <laughs> you know, that's, that's a big part of it. And so it's, it's hard to get used to when you're dealing with such, you're used to such popular languages. Yeah. So just consider that. We started with an inti- a string that should have been an integer and ended up with the hardest Go code Alex has ever <laughs> written. <laughs> so there you go. But yeah. now we have a JSON munger and a struct munger and a struct default setter and a struct validator and all kinds of powerful tools for us going forward, which we are sure to benefit from and already have. So Yeah. And there's a there's a fair amount of JSON in our future, I believe, from what I've heard. Um, <laughs> that's an understatement, y'all. We'll have more oh on that God. later. More on that later. All right. Uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk to you all later. Remember, uh, we're going to do an episode 400 and then take a short pause on this while we finish our God-given huge project that we're working on here. Project. And then, yep. we'll excited talk about to that. Get that. Talk about that. We'll talk about that for years. Years. That'd be amazing. Yep. All right. See you later. Bye, y'all. Eight.